Hello and welcome to Retrieving the Social Sciences, a production of the Center for Social Science Scholarship. I'm your host, Ian Anson, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. On today's show, as always, we'll be hearing from UMBC faculty, students, visiting speakers, and community partners about the social science research they've been performing in recent times. Qualitative, quantitative, applied, empirical, normative, on Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring the best of UMBC's social science community to you. Americans revere the United States Constitution. Authored by the legendary Founding Fathers, our Constitution is more than just a legal document to most Americans, in part because of the civic education many of us have received in school. It's an integral part of the mythos that helps to explain our nation's high levels of patriotism and, of course, our attachment to national symbols like Betsy Ross's Stars and Stripes and George Washington's Cherry Tree, among others. But despite our reverence for the Constitution, many Americans know very little about its history and its evolution over time. The U.S. Constitution has been amended 27 times over our nation's almost 250-year history. But despite the relative rarity of changes to the Constitution, it has managed to stand the test of time. In fact, the U.S. Constitution is one of the world's oldest democratic documents. Our Constitution is much older than countries like France's, which we normally associate with democratic stability in today's day and age. So what explains the impressive durability of our Constitution, especially when it's been so relatively immune to change over the last century? On today's episode of Retrieving the Social Sciences, we bring you a rebroadcast of the 2022 UMBC Constitution Day Lecture, sponsored by the Department of Political Science and CS3. This year's lecture was delivered by Dr. Robinson Woodward Burns, an assistant professor of political science at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Woodward Burns' recent book is entitled Hidden Laws, how State Constitutions Stabilize American Politics. And in this acclaimed volume, Dr. Woodward Burns argues that our Constitution endures, in part because of a set of 50 other documents that are perhaps even less well understood than our venerable constitutional text by most Americans. In his remarks, Dr. Woodward Burns explains how our state's constitutions, and yes, you might be surprised to learn that every state has one, including Maryland, these constitutions have important consequences for democratic stability in times of political turmoil. This is an incredibly topical and insightful argument, and one that we'll enjoy listening to right now. Good afternoon. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I would like to thank first the Department of Political Science and the Center for uh, Social Science Scholarship for co-hosting this talk. And uh, what I'll do today is try to sort of start with a puzzle about the Constitution, which hopefully in about 45 minutes I can answer. Um, so we're, we're celebrating the Constitution's 234th birthday, and that's a bit unusual because if you look at other national constitutions, they don't last nearly this long. The United States Constitution is an extraordinary outlier, and it's really, really old. So my question for this talk is, how has the Constitution survived for almost a quarter of a millennium? Has it survived the Civil War, periods of internal crisis, economic collapse? How has the United States come to the world's oldest written national constitution? Not only is the U.S. Constitution older than all other national documents, it's also older than the state documents. So when you compare the U.S. Constitution 
to the state constitutions, the stability of the National Guard really comes into focus. The states, you see a lot more constitutional turnover. There have been at least 411 attempts to draft new state constitutions. 144 have been ratified. There have been 255 different bodies gathered in the convention to write new state constitutions. And similarly, you see a lot more amendment happening at the state level. There have been at least uh, 700,695 uh, amendments to the current 50 state constitutions relative to the 27 amendments ratified at the federal level. And state constitutions have much shorter lifespans, so a little more than half of the lifespan of the federal constitution. So, so why is this? Why do we have this system where we have a really stable federal constitution and a lot of instability in the state constitutions? So I'm going to try to answer that over the course of this lecture. I'm going to do it with a special emphasis on voting in the United States, which is something that's becoming more and more important now as we see protections for the right to vote increasingly roll back, especially at the state level. So uh, I'll try to give an answer for why I think we get this sort of federal stability and state constitutional instability. But first, what I'll do is I'll give you a few kind of common stories about why uh, the Constitution has survived for so long. And I'll try to kind of walk through normal stories, and I'll give my own story and give you probably two case studies that I can uh, unpack my claims and try to give some evidence for the claims I make. So first, what's the normal story of why we have a constitution that's lasted for so long? One story is that you get controversy that could press for constitutional change emerging at the national level, and national actors will step up to the plate and either resolve or fail to resolve these national constitutional controversies. The Supreme Court, for example, can step in and act as an arbiter in ways that define constitutional meaning and either create instability or stability at the national level. Either the federal court uh, successfully resolves or fails to resolve these national questions. But one point that I want to make is that we have these 50 other state constitutions which are addressing these nationally salient issues in the same way, sometimes causing a lot of the outcomes that we're attributing to the national branches. And if we're ignoring the state constitutionalism, then sometimes we can attribute outcomes to national political actors that those national political actors are not actually causing. So if we ignore state constitutions, we're also not correctly understanding national politics in the United States. The two don't exist in isolation. So we'll try to kind of unpack that point. The normal story is then about the federal constitution, these stories that don't include the states. What do those stories look like? Uh, one answer for why we've had this constitution, the same federal constitution for 234 years, is that it's really, really hard to you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress or two-thirds of the convention called by the states, convention called by two-thirds of states, and then ratification by three-quarters of the states and legislature or convention. It's the highest part of amendment out of any national constitution. So that might be why we see so little amendment. But the thing about constitutions that are hard to amend, at least when you compare them, is that the ones that are very hard to sort of bend or amend, they tend to snap, they're brittle, right? So you want constitutions that bend so they don't break. In this sense, the U.S. Constitution is about why it's the hardest national constitution to amend in the world. That means it should probably have the shortest lifespan. So I don't think this answer is really compelling. So another answer might be, instead of amendment, we just take issues to the Supreme Court to resolve constitutional meaning or to Congress. Sometimes Congress will pass statutes, non-constitutional laws that still help us determine constitutional meaning. And I think that's, again, a decent story, but remember, that if we're only looking at national actors, we're still not fully understanding the process. So I don't think we can look only at national actors like uh, federal judiciary, the federal judiciary, or Congress's statutory lawmaking power in order to understand the, the uh, survival of the U.S. Constitution. 
So there's one other reason, and I think this is maybe the best of the three, which is that the public really venerates the U.S. Constitution. So if you go down to the National Archives and the gift shop, you can buy the text uh, on the buy a baseball with the text of the Constitution, you can buy a rain poncho, you can buy a gift bag from the gift shop, the text of the Constitution on it, and it's a British friend. Explain to me last week that's really weird. That Americans <laughs> are unique in our veneration for the Constitution. Uh, we, we put it on everything. You know, rarely do we fully understand its meaning, but there is this broad public uh, culture of constitutional veneration, uh, which James Madison says you know, uh, uh, grants uh, longevity to the Constitution. So that might explain part of it, and I think that, again, is sort of helpful in understanding the longevity of the Constitution, but I'll give a different story here. So what I think is, is that more often we see that nationally salient political issues, national constitutional constitutional controversies are often pushed on the states in ways that bring about state constitutional change and prevent change to the national constitution. That we see issues that could be resolved at the national level instead of being resolved at the state level, preventing change to the national constitution, bringing about change to the state constitutional level. So I'm going to try to break that down for a little bit, explaining what this process looks like, and then give a broad theory and a little bit of sort of over, uh, evidence, giving an overview of that before I give to uh, short stories on how this process went. So, in the book, I have this four-part typology, and I'm going to go through it kind of quickly here, because y'all have the nuts and bolts unless y'all want them. But we can imagine that nationally salient political issues emerge at the national level and result only in national reform. And this occurs sometimes. The Constitution says there are some things that can't be resolved at the state level. States, for example, cannot raise armies and navies. They're forbidden from doing it. Uh, and largely, they, they don't. Um, Kentucky's 1891 state constitution creates a Kentucky Navy. There's no real reason for that, and it's also constitutionally forbidden. For the most part, that kind of thing doesn't actually happen. Instead, you know, we see a lot of issues involving the states uh, in areas that are kind of subject to overlapping regulation. Under the Tenth Amendment, creates these broad powers, and it says that powers that aren't granted to the federal government or reserved to the states, uh, I'm sorry, that are forbidden to the states, can be regulated at the state level. What this means is that the states and the federal government can regulate a lot of issues together. So we can imagine an issue that's nationally salient, emerges at the national level, and then gets pushed down to the state level. Uh, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, there was this big anti-tax balance budget movement, which failed largely in Congress, but created all of these state-level reforms, uh, restricting um, uh, budgeting and, and taxation powers. We can also imagine uh, a nationally salient, a nationally important issue emerging in the states and then kind of filtering up uh, in a process I call elevation that results in um, change at the national level. States can converge on a policy, for example, and I'll give two examples of that today uh, around voting rights, in ways that we see members of the Supreme Court or Congress imitating, trying to entrench a national platform that has more or less already emerged at the state level. Finally, we can imagine the states entirely obviating or preventing federal level action, a nationally salient issue emerges at the state level and is only ever addressed at the state level. A lot of voting rights reform, nationally salient, was really only addressed at the state level prior to the Civil War. So those are, I think, kind of the overall types of things that could happen. Importantly, most paths for change at some point involve the state level. They're in that last three categories, those uh, final three categories. So most paths to change will go through the states. So what I'll do now is, is try to give you a sense of why that might be. Uh, for one, again, it's really hard to amend the U.S. Constitution. We need to propose an amendment, two-thirds of both houses of Congress. 
So rarely do you actually get these really big congressional supermajorities necessary to propose an amendment. Very hard to do. For most of American political history, you're kind of stuck between those two boundaries. So an amendment, largely not viable. If you go to the National Archives, which I guess it's I'm surrounding myself, I go there a lot, um, you can see there's uh, an exhibit with uh, um, proposed amendments before Congress. There have been 11,970 proposed amendments up to 2020. 33 of them passed Congress, six of those failed ratification, 27 of them were ratified. 0.02% success rate. So, not likely that an amendment passes Congress. Much easier to pass amendments at the state level. Uh, in nearly all states, an amendment can be uh, can pass with a simple majority in the legislature. In most states, it also needs approval by the voters. In addition to amending state constitutions, uh, which by the way, amendments at the state constitutional level, much higher success rate of, of the uh, current um, 50 state constitutions. Uh, we've had 11, uh, sorry, 7,695 amendments ratified as of 2020 out of just over 11,000 proposed. So on average, state constitutional amendments succeed. You can also entirely replace state constitutions. Very easy to do. Just under half of the bodies assembled to entirely rewrite state constitutions that have succeeded in passing new documents. So there's an active culture of rewriting state constitutions. State constitutions, as a result, are really, really big documents. Uh, they are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of words. Um, so the U.S. Constitution clocks in at 7,800 words. The Alabama Constitution, 388,000 words. It's the size of the full book. Uh, this is the original Alabama 1901 Constitution. There are a lot of problems in this document, which we're going to talk about later. Um, really long documents, so they're, they're full of all of these provisions, which over time they get outdated and need replacement. And so state constitutions get stuck in this churn of constant amendment. They're always being rewritten. And usually there are amendments added on top of old amendments, which is how you get a document that looks like this. As a result, there's no culture of veneration around state constitutions, while the public is aware of the U.S. Constitution and sometimes made to venerate the Constitution in public things like this. Those things don't exist at the state level, right? Only 52% of Americans think state constitutions exist. They do. That's the one thing that you should take away from this lecture. Um, the public, though, not being aware that state constitutions exist, generally has fewer reservations with state constitutional amendment. There's less of a culture around uh, prohibition of state constitutions. What this means is that a lot of change gets pushed down at the state level. State constitutions are so much easier to change that if you're trying to make constitutional change in the U.S., you're probably not going to succeed at the national level, but you certainly can succeed somewhere at the state level. And that's one of the stories I'll try to tell. So I'll give you, for just a second, a little bit back to get evidence of how I think this might be happening. Uh, I look at all of the proposed federal constitutional amendments, 1788 to 2020, 11, of those. And I also look at the proposed uh, state constitutions, as well as amendments to the state constitutions from 1942 up to um, 2020. Uh, and what you look at, uh, what you see when you look at these, is that generally the two move together in tandem. When there are more federal amendments being proposed, there are more state constitutional amendments being proposed. When one increases, the other increases. And similarly, between federal amendment and wholesale state replacement, you see the two increase together, especially in periods of crisis, uh, civil war, civil uh, movement, which we will talk about later. So, similarly strong correlation between federal amendments and state constitutional replacement, 0.67. Um, 
which suggests again that the two are moving together. But really, what I'm interested in showing is that you are seeing federal amendment and state constitutional change happening on the same kinds of topics. When there's attempts to revise the federal constitution on one topic, you also see attempts to revise the state constitutions on those topics. So we break down the federal amendments by issue area. There's a whole lot of mess here. A lot of different things are being proposed over time. A lot of these amendments are not serious or viable. There's an 1894 amendment to rename the United States of America, the United States of the world, which I think kind of speaks to America's colonial ambitions at the time. It also is not really a serious proposal. There are, however, in this, uh, if you put them all together, you'll kind of get a sense of what people are thinking about constitutionally at a given time. So these are amendments relating to structures and powers of the federal government. And you can also see amendments relating to civil rights and civil liberties over time. And what I do through the book is I take a specific area, in this case about school regulation, that peaks uh, just after uh, the Brown versus Board decision where Congress, you have conservatives in Congress with strong backlash to Brown. So what I do in the book is I take specific issue areas and I see, I ask if this is happening at the national level, are states successfully tackling this issue? So I'll give you two stories now, which kind of, I, I think, casts and hopefully demonstrates the story that I'm trying to give. Uh, in which state constitutions can resolve national political issues, and they both deal with voting rights. The first story has to do with the long fight for the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution forbids discrimination in the right to vote on the basis of sex, forbids disenfranchisement on the basis of sex. The second thing I'll talk about deals with the poll tax. The poll tax was a race-based tool of disenfranchisement that required that people put down a dollar or two uh, when coming to the polls. It was uh, used predominantly in ex-Confederate Southern states in the Jim Crow era to disenfranchise black people. So we'll talk first about the 19th Amendment. We'll go from like the 1860s up to the 1920s, and then I'll talk about the poll tax kind of going from the turn of the 20th century up to the 1960s. That's the two stages. And then at the very end, I'll kind of have a half point about contemporary race-based disenfranchisement. So the 19th Amendment. A uh, famous amendment took a very long time to get ratified. I'm going to try to tell a story that, that sort of shows how suffragettes, people who favored ratification of the 19th Amendment, strategically moved between the national and state level. In 1866, Congress is considering expanding the right to vote to not only black men, as it will in Section uh, 2 of the 14th Amendment to some degree, and certainly in Section 1 of the 15th Amendment, but also in the, a proposed amendment for, uh, by James Brooks of, of uh, New York, Congressman James Brooks of New York, also is considering expanding the vote to women. So it looks like there might be this moment after the Civil War ends in 1865 where you get this expansion of the franchise. Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton joined Frederick Douglass in forming the American Equal Rights Association in uh, 1867, uh, trying to get the franchise for both uh, black men and for women generally. But they largely fail. Uh, the latter, 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, address race-based disenfranchisement. The 14th Amendment, uh, Section 2, refers to disenfranchisement of men on the basis of race. And so you see suffragettes continue to push Congress for an amendment like this. They continue to have these congressional hearings. Uh, in 1884, Senator George Best of Missouri says, we don't have enough enfranchisement of women happening in the uh, far west, in the west, uh, which is just beginning to uh, be incorporated into the United States. Um, we see a little bit of suffrage happening at the municipal level, but there's not a lot of enfranchisement. And so uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune in 1887 says, changing the Constitution, referring here to the proposed female suffrage amendment, um, Teddy Roosevelt puts a little, more a little more directly 20 years later. He says, 
uh, you know, after suffragettes have gotten a few states in the West, he says, uh, when they come to the petition table, he says, go back to the West and go get another state. And so that's what happens is female suffragettes move state by state through the West, and there are states coming in for the first time, like Utah, uh, which writes in 1896 its first state constitution enfranchising women, um, uh, Montana, which sends the first uh, female member of, of Congress, Jeanette Rankin, uh, Wyoming, which is the first state to enfranchise women. These Western states, which are new progressive states that are trying to attract female settlers, are a lot more willing to enfranchise women under their state laws or uh, because franchise is regulated at the state level under their uh, state constitutions. Uh, and so, increasingly after these successes, uh, suffragettes realized this is a viable strategy. In 1890, the two main suffrage associations, the American Woman Suffrage Association and the National Woman Suffrage Association, merged into the National American Woman Suffrage Association, the NAWSA. In 1893, they have another convention, and one of the delegates, Claudia Quigley Murphy, points out that members of Congress from these Western states have more and more women in their constituency. That is, to get elected or to get re-elected, they're relying on women who form their uh, the, the, uh, electoral coalitions in their home districts and states. In order to get more members of Congress like that who are sympathetic to a suffrage amendment, who rely on women for re-election, uh, you need to flip more states, especially in the West. So the idea is to build this national campaign moving from West to East, enfranchising women state by state until you can flip Congress, until you get more states which have electoral college delegations selected by women. So they go state by state, and you can kind of see the story evolving. So I want to tell you two stories about this. This is a parade in 1913. It's a national suffrage parade. Suffragettes march from the White House down to the United States Capitol. It's a famous parade, and then when they reach the Capitol, they present a petition for an amendment to the Constitution to create test women. And you'll note a few things. One is that they, they march by state delegation. They carry state placards. Here you'll see uh, Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Utah, and Idaho displayed California in, in 1911, first enfranchises women, and women are canvassing by car for the first time in the state. Um, one kind of outcome of this, though, is that when you enfranchise state by state, you move from west to east, western states are predominantly white. And so you have a movement uh, led by white women, in which most of the constituents are white women. This is the Howard University Delta Sigma Theta chapter, which had formed about two years before this, which is forced to march at the back of the parade. And you see a similar, parade, uh, a similar pattern happening where southern states where most black women live are the ones that are least likely to have female suffrage uh, reform happening. We'll talk about that a bit more in a second. Similarly, you see suffragettes. This is Alice Paul um, petitioning the president, Woodrow Wilson, for a female franchise amendment. And they make this point, which is, is that by 1916, by 1920, these presidential elections, uh, states that uh, allow female suffrage are uh, increasing in number so that uh, the Electoral College delegation from these states also is increasing. Presidential candidates now have a reason to support female suffrage. Um, so, Carrie Chapman Catt, she's a strategist who uh, is also president of the NAWSA, the main female suffrage organization. And in 1916, she has this national convention. She brings together the state level heads of the NAWSA into a back room. She puts a map on the wall. And she says, we're going to go state by state, and now we're going to we've captured the West. We're going to now try to get the Midwest and the Northeast. The South, again, is still largely off the board. Uh, she is trying to replicate Illinois' 1913 suffrage law and other states um, in order to yeah, push the right to vote nationally. Uh, but there are uh, sort of holes in that. By 1920, you'll see 
that a number of states uh, have shifted to partial or full enfranchisement. Uh, and what this does is it changes the national political geography. So you'll see here the dashed line uh, is number of states, the school tax or municipal franchise, we've also got presidential franchise and uh, full franchise. The solid line is number of female franchise amendments. And there are female franchise amendments being proposed by a handful of members of Congress for decades, but it's not really until the number of states uh, enfranchising women in one past period of it. It's not really until that picks up, and afterwards you see a shift in the uh, um, in congressional willingness to propose amendments, partly because the uh, shift uh, there's a shift in the composition of Congress. Presidents increasingly rely on women for their re-election uh, by the uh, 2020 election. States enfranchising women uh, heading into the 2020 election. States, uh, sorry, 1940 election. States enfranchising women um, now form a majority of the electoral college. So I would argue that that prior state reform that makes it possible to amend the national constitution. States converge on a platform of a policy of enfranchising women. As Western states are enfranchising women, the Republican Party now has a bunch of constituents in Western states. And while the Republican Party, especially after the Civil War, had relied on enfranchising black people in the South, it sees this new Western electorate and it gradually kind of rolls back its commitment to the black vote. So you get this cascading situation where after 1890, a number of state constitutions, a number of state constitutional conventions assemble the Mississippi plan, which includes a poll tax, a literacy tax, a character test that allowed local registrars to make these arbitrary decisions in which that pushed out uh, black voters themselves. And also poll tax, which would require you to put down one or two dollars in the amount fixed in the state constitution in order to vote, fell hardest on the states working poor, predominantly again on the black working poor in states like Mississippi. It's called the Mississippi Plan. And it spreads like wildfire. By 1902, every southern state has rewritten their state constitution, partly because in 1898, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Mississippi v. Williams, says that these sorts of poll tax clauses are legal. Now, how could they be legal? We know the 14th and 15th Amendments say you can't have race-based discrimination, but Mississippi, in this case, appeals and says the poll tax does not mention race. It is facially racist. There's no language in it that mentions race. And the Supreme Court accepts this. It says the poll tax is not a tool of racial discrimination. Something that we know is wrong, but constitutionally, the Supreme Court upholds it. Uh, and so it kind of culminates Alabama writes its current constitution in 1901. This is John B. Knox. This is the convention. You can imagine what kind of document this convention is going to create. John B. Knox is clear about what kind of document they're drafting. He says, and what is it that we want to do? Why it is within the limits imposed by the federal constitution to establish white supremacy. This has happened between uh, 1887, Florida's kind of a very early mover, and uh, 1902, every ex-Confederate state is drafted in Constitution. The Supreme Court largely uninterested through this period in intervening. 1937 case called Greenbuffer settles. It reiterates, reiterates its commitment that a poll tax is facially race neutral and does not discriminate on the basis of race. So there's a really high bar to getting the federal act, uh, federal government to actually reverse the poll tax. Um, now, as a result, anti-poll tax reformers, like the Southern Conference on Human Welfare and the National Committee to Abolish the Poll Tax, instead they looked to Congress in the following year, 18, uh, sorry, uh, 1938, uh, the uh, Southern Committee on Human Welfare, and then the NCAPT uh, the following year, appealed to Congress for an anti-poll tax amendment. But Congress has all these Southern Democrats who 
realize that uh, if they expand the franchise to black voters in their state, they might lose their seat. The executive branch of the Department of Justice realizes they're kind of cornered here. Uh, 1941, Colbert Brown, lower federal court uh, upholds the poll tax. The Supreme Court refuses to hear the case. Clear signal to the Department of Justice that the federal uh, judiciary is okay with the poll tax. After that, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Attorney General Francis Biddle says this is not something that we're going to win. And although FDR is still getting on the phone and making calls to uh, members of Congress, senators, uh, to try to get them to support an anti-poll tax bill, there's just not a lot of traction at the national level. Enough that areas through in 1945 uh, says that the poll tax is, quote, a matter for southern states to work out. And southern states do work this out. In fact, southern states repeal the poll tax. So again, national government not interested in repeal. But you've got a coalition of progressives at the state level in the 1930s and 40s who do successfully repeal the poll tax at the state level. You see a lot of pro-labor and union organizations working together with uh, uh, civil rights organizations. Louisiana is the first one uh, to move. In 1934, the Depression spreads a lot of people can't pay the poll tax. Uh, and increasingly in Louisiana, poor white workers and farmers can't pay the poll tax. Huey Long, who's a populist in Louisiana, who relies on the poor white vote to get reelected, moves in 1934 to repeal the state's poll tax with support from the American Federation of Labor, one of the two large labor unions. 1936, Florida follows. Uh, Claude Pepper, who's a, a state lawmaker, uh, again, moves to repeal the poll tax in order to re-franchise the state's working poor. This is a big emphasis for the New Deal in which more and more Americans are poor, uh, and so they're kind of coalescing around pushing against these uh, discriminatory poll tax um, issues. Also in Miami, uh, the mob is just paying a lot of people's poll taxes to get them to the polls. Uh, so it's kind of an anti-corruption measure as well. Uh, 1941, the Congress of uh, Industrial Organizations and the AFL together uh, organized against the poll tax, as does the NAACP. Uh, Asa Philip Randolph, uh, labor and civil rights organizer, uh, prominent uh, poll tax opponent, and states began slowly dominoing. Between 1943 and 46, a couple of things changed. One, you get inflation, and all of a sudden, a constitutionally fixed $1 tax becomes a lot easier to pay, and so the state poll tax loses its teeth. Also, black servicemen are returning home after the Second World War, and it becomes increasingly unpopular to enfranchise black servicemen. Uh, to disenfranchise them using the poll tax. So in Georgia, for example, Ellis Arnold, a progressive governor, uh, uh, leads the 1945 measure to uh, repeal the poll tax within Georgia. Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi also repealed. And so among the ex-Confederate states, by 1951, the poll tax only exists in Alabama, Texas, and Virginia. Increasingly dead letter in some places, registrars won't force it in some places. The poll tax by 1951 largely dead. But it's still another 10 years before the federal government is willing to actually recognize the need for poll tax repeal. In 1960, uh, this uh, repeal amendment passes the Senate. In 1962, what becomes the 24th Amendment repealing the poll tax passes the Senate, but only through this very clever procedural uh, measure. It's actually the amendment is passed as part of the bill to recognize the birthplace of Alexander Hamilton as a national sort of it passes partly because, as says, uh, Florida's Senator Spencer Holland says, so many of the southern states have recently eliminated the poll tax requirement. Congress is just trying to block what's happening at the state level. And it is important because this 24th Amendment prevents the reinstitution of the poll tax. It also is followed uh, by the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Section 10, uh, also by law of the poll tax, which the Supreme Court in Harper versus Virginia Board of Elections 
reaffirms the next year. So 1964-65-66 amendment, congressional statutes, and court action. Important work, it prevents repeal of the poll tax. But it's not why we get repeal of the poll tax. It's really only at this period here that you see federal action against the poll tax. Once down the line, a number of southern states, actually federal states with the poll tax, once that number is collapsed. The federal government is only willing to reaffirm what has happened as a result of labor and civil rights organizing at the state constitutional level. And so we would be wrong to say that the VRA or the 24th Amendment or the Harvard decision is why we would feel the poll tax. So I want to give you a couple of lessons and then I want to talk about contemporary race-based disenfranchisement. One is that if we're ignoring state constitutions, we're not actually understanding national politics correctly. So if we have this story where national controversy creates federal action, then that creates federal outcomes, we're also missing how parallel state constitutional reform causes a lot of the same outcomes. If we only told a story about pressure to reform the poll tax, repeal the poll tax, in which we get the 24th Amendment and the VRA and Harvard, we actually be incorrectly describing what those amendments did and how they came around. Because it was really state constitutional reform that got rid of the poll tax. If we ignore the state constitutions that we're not actually correctly explaining national politics, the VRA, Harper, 24th Amendment are important for preventing world back, but they're not what actually call it. You know. uh, as a result, state constitutions, state constitutional reform have the power to channel reform away from our two national branches and affect how national branches interact. Uh, the poll tax case showed that state level reform created consensus in favor of poll tax repeal at the national level. Uh, so, hopefully, I have convinced y'all that the U.S. Constitution has survived for so long. We're able to push the pressure for reform down to the state level. States usually, not always, usually act as a venting mechanism in ways that prevent change to the national constitution. And that, I think, is why we're celebrating the Constitution's birthday 234 years after it was first signed. I want to conclude, though, with a story about where we're going now. Uh, and this is pretty short. We're seeing a lot of gridlock and polarization at the state level, and increasingly in competitive states, purple states, we're seeing a repeal of the right to vote. We're seeing suppression of the right to vote. We're seeing subversion of normal election laws. And we're also seeing skewing that uh, increases or over-represents one party, which is like uh, race for the gerrymandering. So I'm going to tell stories about that. Uh, one, we see something like a modern poll tax where in 2018, uh, Florida voters passed Amendment 4, uh, uh, which reenfranchised formerly incarcerated people, but the state legislature required that before those people vote, they pay outstanding court fees. Something like a modern poll tax, you gotta pay before you vote. Second, gerrymandering. This is Wisconsin's lower house of their state legislature. In 2018, the state legis- uh, uh, the Republican Party lost the popular vote their state legislature, but they won a majority of seats because they were so carefully gerrymandered that they packed Democratic, especially black voters, in Georgia and Madison. And then in Milwaukee, they funneled away some of those voters into surrounding red districts. They only got 45% of the popular vote, but they won 63% of the seats. It made it possible that you could lose an election and still win. Wild stuff. Last thing I want to talk about was constantly also Georgia. So state legislatures are bound by the constitution to allow or to allocate the presidential electors to whoever wins the popular vote. Almost all states have done this for almost all American political history. All states again currently award their electors on some basis uh, to whoever wins uh, the popular vote in their state. But by amending state constitutions, you can actually break that connection. You can allow state legislatures to go rogue so that. Uh, there's a bill in, in Wisconsin that was proposed uh, last year that would 
allow, let's say, if Donald Trump runs in 2024, he would uh, imagine he loses the popular vote in Wisconsin. The state legislature could nonetheless give him all of the electoral college votes uh, and allow him to win that state after he lost it. And that would be constitutionally valid for the state constitutional amendment. This is called the independent state legislature theory. Four justices on the Supreme Court have already held this. Amy Cody Barrett's the fifth. We don't have her opinion because she hasn't already yet. Although in a forthcoming case about Harper versus Moore, she's going to have to rule on it. Importantly, this kind of outcome, we can imagine a situation where a Republican candidate loses the election, but nonetheless becomes president. That could happen in the state constitutional amendments. And that's something I'm happy to talk about more in questions, as well as the perennial question of abortion, which is now returning to the state level thanks to the Supreme Court style's decision. So with that, thank you, and I look forward to questions. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Campus Connections. Now it's time for Campus Connections, the part of the podcast where we connect today's featured content to the work of other scholars at UMBC. Today, our intrepid production assistant, Alex Andrews, is back to tell us a bit about the research of Dr. William Blake, Associate Professor of Political Science here at UMBC. What's Dr. Blake been up to, Alex? Thanks, Dr. Anson. This week on Campus Connections, we'll be taking a look at the work of Dr. William Blake, Associate Professor and Associate Department Chair of Political Science at UMBC. The title of this work is Social Capital, Institutional Rules, and Constitutional Amendment Rates, and it discusses why some constitutions are amended more frequently than others. Due to the lack of agreement on what shapes constitutional amendments, this paper examines how social capital plays into amendment rules and thus constitutional amendment rates, the results of this study showed that amendment frequency is a product of amendment rules, group membership, civic activism, and levels of social and political trust. Naturally, the context we find ourselves in also plays a key role, and social capital was found to positively impact social movements looking to make constitutional amendments. If you get a chance, this study is a great read. That's all for Campus Connections this week. Back to you, Dr. Anson. Thanks again, Alex. I always appreciate learning more about constitutions, and I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion as well. Join us next time for more from the fascinating world of social science at UMBC. And as always, keep questioning. Retrieving the Social Sciences is a production of the UMBC Center for Social Science Scholarship. Our director is Dr. Christine Mallinson, our associate director is Dr. Felipe Filomeno, and our production intern is Alex Andrews. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Dewan Moreland. Find out more about CS3 at socialscience.umbc.edu. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where you can find full video recordings of recent CS3 events. Until next time, keep questioning.